You're listening to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS, part of the Classroom Psychology Network. And now, here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very much for joining me. Gosh, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks so very much for hopping on in here and joining our little community of positive psychology folk trying to flourish in the world with multiple sclerosis. Now, so far on our podcast, we have covered a few topics and have given us some good ideas for things we can do to try and flourish, to to thrive in the context of multiple sclerosis or of other chronic conditions or of difficult life circumstances more broadly. We talked about acceptance and activation, the idea that we need to accept the situation for what it is, embrace difficult experiences and difficult emotions, and in so doing, allow them over time to quieten a little. As we listen to the crew, they don't need to shout so loudly, and then the captain can be heard. That's you, the captain reassuring the crew. And then activation, this idea of going out and doing the things that make us happy in the world, whatever they may be, and doing them in spite of, and maybe particularly if we feel anxious about those things, because doing the things that make us anxious help us to feel less anxious, proving that we can actually do them. That's pretty awesome. And then we talked a little bit about positive psychology, uh, the field of of post-traumatic growth, this notion that you can grow and thrive with uh, something like multiple sclerosis, that multiple sclerosis may in fact inhabit a space where it's particularly fertile ground for growth. And then we talked about the idea of cognitive reframing, the notion that uh, that essentially we should try and see the barriers and the MS itself, like the MS itself and the barriers that it presents as challenges that we can overcome. So each new difficulty, we see it as a new challenge. And in that, we see it as something that can and should be overcome rather than a threat because we avoid threats, we overcome challenges. Our self-efficacy benefits from that kind of cognition. So we try and do that. And I'm doing this too. I'm doing all these things for sure. And then last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, last episode, because this is a fortnightly podcast, um, we talked about optimism. And optimism, it seems, can be benefited. We can prop it up using a particular intervention called the best possible self-intervention. It's a very well-evidenced positive psychology intervention, and for sure it raises optimism, but seemingly only in the short term. So maybe that intervention is best saved in the back pocket, particularly for me, sitting in my back pocket for when I get really upset. If I'm having a relapse, if I feel very pessimistic about the future, I pull that puppy out, we will use that intervention, the best possible self-intervention, to try to raise my optimism again. But we also, at the end of the last session, talked about, like, uh, we talked about this sort of positive psychology principle of that most people are resilient and that positive psychology effects kind of self-perpetuate, right? Our default position is that we should feel quite optimistic and we should feel shoulds a bit bad. I don't mean to get into kind of toxic positivity here, you know, not everything is always going to feel good, but there are certain, like, we don't necessarily need to suffer more than we do, right? And that there are certain 
thoughts, certain cognitions, certain ways of being that might make us suffer more, like rumination, which is the sort of continual habitual focusing on the negative aspects of, of the MS and the future, and catastrophization, like imagining a worst case scenario future. Those are things that would get in the way. And positive psychology is sort of suggesting that, that our default mode should kind of be more optimistic than it would be in the context of those barriers. So our job, you know, the, where we're trying to sort of raise optimism manually, positive psychology says, no, you don't need to do that because actually optimism will happen naturally if we get these barriers out of the way. So that's a really important principle. It's a principle known as the eudaimonic staircase. Alan uh, and colleagues in 2021, they described this really nicely in, they did a systematic review of mindfulness-based positive psychology interventions more broadly. We're not going to focus too heavily on this article. Um, but they, like always, I'll put the references in the uh, in the show notes, in the like the comment in the description and stuff. Uh, so you can follow along for sure. Um, they describe some really cool stuff around hedonia and eudaimonia. So hedonia, hedonic pursuits, is the pursuit of pleasure, right? So uh, things that make you happy in the world, things that make things that give you joy and that make you happy that are pleasurable things, they are like hedonic pursuits. Eudaimonic pursuits, on the other hand, are things that give you meaning and purpose. It's like the pursuit or experience of like personal growth, self-actualization, flourishing and meaning. So hedonia, pursuit of pleasure. Eudaimonia, the pursuit of meaning. It's a little bit of an oversimplification, but it makes sense. Now, Alan and colleagues uh, talk about the eudaimonic staircase. And they say that unlike hedonia, eudaimonia, the pursuit of meaning, perpetuates itself. It comes with an upside spiral of positive emotions that when you feel good, they talk about the broaden and build theory, which basically says that when you feel good, when you feel happy, when you feel like you're pursuing something that's important to you, when you have meaning in your life, then because of that positive emotion, you have more sort of cognitive capacities, more creativity available to you to solve problems and to do cool things. And that then ups, like, like triggers the other side of the spiral of the eudaimonic staircase. It's easier to find meaning because you're creating beautiful things. You're engaging in like creative problem solving and you're solving issues that you might otherwise not be able to. And so what Alan and colleagues are sort of saying is that it's okay to pursue hedonism and life should have pleasure in it, like for sure. But that pursuing those things requires some kind of constant upkeep, right? So you get the new iPhone and it gives you hed hedonic pleasure for a while, but eventually that will fade as you kind of get into hedonic adaptation. Hello, everyone. Uh, I love when theories come together like that. It's like a meeting of minds. It's beautiful. Head, we've talked a little bit about like hedonic adaptation, right? So you get used to it. So then you need to pursue it again. You need to get the next thing that's going to make you happy. The new car, the new house, the new whatever it is that you think is going to get you there. And it does. Like it, this isn't, I'm not saying this is bad and I'm not saying it's ineffective by any means. Hedonic pursuits are completely legitimate and they do get us to happiness. It's not a, this is not impossible, uh, but it requires the constant upkeep. 
Whereas what Alan and colleagues are saying is that with eudaimonia, there's a eudaimonic staircase. It will perpetuate itself if we pursue it. So searching for meaning and and like searching for meaning, pursuing meaning, uh, self-actualization, personal growth is no bad thing. And it should perpetuate itself. Now, this principle is cool mostly because it says that all we now need to do is to work out what's happening with rumination, what's happening with like catastrophization, these barriers to the eudaimonic staircase. How do we identify them? How do we get them out of the way? And it turns out there's this cool intervention called mindfulness that's out there that actually is maybe the best evidenced intervention in psychology. I've not seen one so well evidenced anywhere else. And the idea is very straightforward. All we need to do in mindfulness is whenever, like, whenever we need, whenever mindfulness or, or in our practice in mindfulness, we develop the skill to become like, aware of the moment-to-moment -moment experience in a non-judgmental and accepting way. This is Han in 2021, uh, Effects of Mindfulness and Acceptance-Based Interventions on Quality of Life, Coping, Cognition, and Mindfulness of People with Multiple Sclerosis, a Systematic Review. So Han did a systematic review of the literature on mindfulness interventions for people with MS. So this is literally for us, which is super cool. And acceptance as part of the mindfulness definition is, as we talked about before, the ability and the willingness to experience unpleasant thoughts and emotions as they are without attempting to avoid or terminate them. There's a bunch of interventions that have been designed to develop mindfulness and acceptance. And these are known more broadly as mindfulness and acceptance-based interventions. Um, there are three that I can think of, three major ones. The first is mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's uh, MBR. <laughs> Why did I try and do an acronym if I couldn't hold it in my head? Yeah, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. I got there. The second is cognitive. I think it's mindfulness-informed cognitive therapies, the second one. And the third is acceptance and commitment therapy. So those are the three big top-shelf interventions for uh, mindfulness, essentially. Mindfulness and acceptance-based interventions. Those are the three biggies. Uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And they even do, like I noticed recently uh, in my local area in Hampshire, they actually do, one of the MS uh, charities does a mindfulness-based stress reduction intervention for people with multiple sclerosis, a group intervention. So I'm going to see if I can get myself into that this year because um, that sounds really cool. Then there's uh, mindfulness-informed cognitive therapy. And then there's uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. Acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction both seem to have a really strong evidence base. And the mindfulness-informed cognitive therapy also has a pretty good evidence base. So these are cool, but worth bearing in mind that all of these are kind of interventions delivered by a person. Uh, so it's not something that you can do yourself very easily, but there may be some stuff that we can do before I get into that intervention, or before any of us get into an intervention of our choosing, there may be some stuff that we can actually do at home, which we'll take a look at, see what the literature says. Now, essentially, Han took a look at a meta-analysis. So he took the effects of all of these different interventions 
in lots of different pieces of research and brought them together to kind of say, so on the whole, what are the sort of treatment effects? What are the effects of these mindfulness and acceptance-based interventions on people with MS? So if you find the beautiful thing about meta-analyses is like, let's say that most studies find a sort of mild to moderate effect, and then one study finds something super important, super large as an effect. The beauty is that it aggregates out. So you take all these studies together, you do a meta-analysis, and because that one study was the outlier, it sort of loses its impact. And we say, actually, on the whole, it's mild to moderate effects. So we it stops taking too much stock of a single study, and it starts to be able to tell us about a scientific consensus in the field. That's why we look so much at systematic reviews and meta-analyses, because they're bad ass, really good at understanding, like, what's the state of play here? And here, their meta-analysis, they looked at immediately after the intervention ended at the outcomes, and then they looked at follow-up after a little bit of time. Immediately after the event, after the intervention, immediately after mindfulness and acceptance-based interventions, they found that quality of life, coping, and attention were improved to a moderate effect. Now, bearing in mind that intervention studies of this nature only ever find small to moderate effect sizes. It's really rare to find interventions with a large effect size. And hello, mindfulness in this meta-analysis turned out to have a strong effect, a large effect on memory immediately, and a large effect on quality of life at follow-up. This is actually huge. So it benefited people's memory, their actual memory abilities in the short term, and their quality of life in the long term to a large effect, which is, again, like, I can't tell you how rare that is. I don't ever see that. And this is a meta-analysis, so this isn't just one study finds a large effect. We have to take some caveats. This is a lot of studies. That's pretty huge. And we're going to take a look at another meta-analysis uh, just to kind of, like, to continue to... to Let's just make sure this wasn't just an odd finding because it's so strong. Let's just make sure that it wasn't. Let's take a look at another meta-analysis only published uh, last year, 2022. Uh, Smart and colleagues, 2022, systematic review of the efficacy of mindfulness-based interventions as a form of neuropsychological rehabilitation. So they weren't just looking at MS. They were looking at a bunch of, uh, of like neuropsychological, neurological difficulties. Um, but they did find, they did uh, separate out the MS patients. So they took out MS and took a look at MS specifically. They found five studies featuring 257 people, which is pretty good. And they found that the study quality was pretty good in the moderate range for most of them, which is not bad for a meta-analysis. Most intervention studies, I would say, are low quality because they're conducted you know, in short periods of time by PhD students uh, Less commonly, they're conducted by research groups where they have large sample sizes over a long period of time, like lots of like randomized controlled trials that are blind, uh, you know, where you, you don't know who the participants are and you don't know which group they're in, etc. And they don't know which group they're in. Those are the really high quality studies. So moderate quality is not bad at all. All five studies reported significant treatment effects favoring mindfulness in multiple sclerosis in particular. They found four of the studies reporting effect sizes, and they found that those studies had small effects on fatigue and MS-related quality of life, and medium to large effects on mood, anxiety, perceived stress, self-compassion, and physical and psychological impact of MS. 
So long story short, mindfulness for MS is pretty awesome. Like that's amazing. Large effect sizes on a number of psychological of uh, psychological domains. This is rock and roll. But these interventions are largely high high intensity, right? They feature a lot of practice and they have like at least weekly intervention with somebody guiding the intervention, with a person doing the intervention. So for sure, like I am going to be trying to get myself into a mindfulness-based stress reduction program for MS. That's rock and freaking roll. Um, but there's actually maybe some things that we can do on the reg that are a little bit less significant, like less substantial, that might still have a pretty good effect. So Taylor and colleagues in 2021, they just they conducted a piece of research called Can a Little Bit of Mindfulness Do You Good? I love little titles like that. And they basically find that mindfulness can actually be learned by self-help and it can be done in a short period of time. Uh, I think they even found like the research generally, I've reading a couple of studies, they seem to find that there's a sort of, there is a, a strong impact for People who are new to mindfulness, there's a strong impact at the narrow end, like 10 minutes of practice, rather than these kind of 45 minute practice sessions, which the sort of beefier mindfulness interventions seem to deploy. So just 10 minutes of mindfulness practice may actually really help. And there's loads of really cool mindfulness stuff online. Now, I don't know which of the sort of, like there are, there are mindfulness, loads of cool mindfulness stuff. Uh, there's mindfulness apps, there's YouTubers doing mindfulness. The challenge for me is I'm not absolutely sure which to follow, but I will say that there is, there are kind of recordings of Kabat-Zinn who brought mindfulness-based stress reduction to the UK. So it might be worth me following Kabat-Zinn's YouTube. Like I've realized that he did all kinds of stuff, uh, but some people on YouTube have put some of his uh, mindfulness on there. So that'll give us a sense of what we need to be looking for. Kabat-Zinn had a big focus on kind of breath and uh, noticing when your attention wanders off, knowing that your attention, like, so I think what he does is he basically invites you to focus on your breath, to, to kind of be mindful of the breath as it enters and leaves the body, and then to notice when your mind wanders, because it inevitably will, and then to gently but firmly guide it back to the breath again, non-judgmentally, just gently and firmly bring it back every time to the present moment. Um, so Kabat-Zinn might be a good one to do. So if I was going to do some self-helpy type stuff, which I think I for sure am, I'm going to follow Kabat-Zinn and see if I can find some of the work that he's done on YouTube. Um, and it looks like the dose-responsey type stuff in here suggests that like just 10 minutes might be enough. Kavanagh and colleagues, 2017, um, they did a piece of work called Can Mindfulness and Acceptance Be Learned by Self-Help? A Systematic Review. So I, and having a look at that and having a look at uh, Taylor and colleagues, I think just a couple of times a day, maybe 10, 15 minutes a time might be enough to induce the positive effects. Now, bearing in mind that these kind of self-guided meditations, mindfulness meditations, don't have quite the same effect. They seem to have uh, smaller to medium effect sizes in these studies. So we're going to be taking a hit, and I don't think it's a good substitute for a real intervention, either 
you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy. I think I need to get myself into one of those to be able to get these kind of large effect sizes. But in the meantime, for sure, I'm going to take a look at like 10 to 15 minute practices, first thing in the morning, last thing before bed, listening to Kabat Zinn if I can, and we'll see where it goes. Finally, Bowles, Davies, and Van Dam in 2022, they took a look at the dose response relationship of mindfulness to these positive outcomes, these positive effects, these like well being effects. And they found that in the first 500 hours, that was where the, the, the sort of the benefits were at their strongest. So, like, and then they sort of they plateau, but they continue on. So what we can do, I think, is to focus on the first 500 hours. That's going to be, if I do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, 500 hours is somewhere in the region of about six years. <laughs> I think that's it. Something like that. Or maybe three to four years. <clears throat> yeah, it's quite a lot. What is that? Like two hours a week. That would be 52 weeks a year. Yeah, somewhere in about three years. Um so we'll be getting good effects for three years. Plus, I'll do mindfulness-based stress reduction. That will help a great deal. Uh, that sounds really awesome. So it seems that we can do these kind of shorter practices, benefiting most over the first 500 hours, listening to Kabat's in. Meanwhile, I'll get myself onto a mindfulness-based stress reduction waiting list because, damn, that sounds awesome. Thanks so much for joining me, everyone. I hope you found this helpful. This is a rock and roll intervention. Mindfulness uh, and acceptance as part of mindfulness seems to be an amazing opportunity for us to continue to thrive in the context of MS. So time for some mindfulness. I'm going to give it a go this week. We're going to start it up every day and every night. We're going to do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. I'm going to do some mindfulness. I'll let you know how it goes in the next episode. Next time, I think we're going to take a look at something pretty cool called Little Acts of Kindness. There's a little body of literature in the positive psychology sphere that talks about how little acts of kindness can have benefits not only to us as givers and to people as recipients, but also to the people out there witnessing the act of kindness um, vicariously. It can actually put some good ripples of positivity into the world. So I don't know. Maybe we could give it a go. Next time, little acts of kindness. Thanks so very much for joining me. You are wonderful and welcome here. And I look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>